Hello and welcome everyone to CRA Energy Chats. Uh, my name is Laura Socha. I'm a senior associate in the energy practice. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing all things energy and all things 2022. To do so, I'm joined by Doug Cook, he's the head of strategy at Ofgem, and Anthony Bowden, who's a principal in the energy practice at CRA. So just to start with, welcome both. Thanks for joining me today. Happy New Year. Indeed. Happy New Year. How are you all doing? Good. It's good to be back into it. I mean, it's, uh, it was good to have a break after what was a crazy year last year, but it's good to be back into a new, hopefully less COVID year. Yes, yes. I think um, I think we're all hoping for that, or at least to be able to live with it. I mean, Doug, thank you for joining. I mean, I think we're so lucky to have you on the first podcast of the year. I mean, we've known each other for a while, but I'm always blown away by your insights, your depth, your knowledge of the year and understanding of the energy industry. Um, I mean, what a great way to start 2022. Thanks, Anne. Bribery and corruption will get you anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Amazing. So as, as you mentioned, Ant, 2021 was a, a bit of a crazy year in many respects. Obviously, pandemic, um, a energy crisis, um, wholesale prices very high. So I think going into 2022, we have a few topics that we might want to, to discuss. So should we get started? I think we might go around the table actually to see what topics you see most prevalent for 2022. Do you want to go first and tell us what your, your thoughts are? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, you can't talk about 2022 without talking about, about 2021. I mean, as we said, what a crazy year. I mean, we had pandemic. We had, you know, some start of growth in the economy globally. We had some quite big inflation numbers, which were filtering through some significant uncertainty as well. Obviously, that culminated in some quite significant price issues across the board but you know I was glad to also have COP26 which for the UK was a fantastic rallying point at the end of 2021 where we could look at some of the energy transition topics in a lot more detail and I really enjoyed looking at that but what do we think for 2022 I, I think that this is the year that the numbers come home to roost right so right. you know whilst we had this optimism in 2021 I think we're going to start seeing some consequences of some of the really big issues that we've been sort of you know, understanding for a few years now. So the Office of Budgetary Responsibility you know, estimates that they'll be required about £1.4 trillion in the economy over the next 30 years to fund the energy transition. You know, if we break that down, right, that's 300 to 400 billion pounds on generation and flexible assets before 2035. You know, more commitment on nuclear SNRs. You know, these aren't cheap pieces of kit. Also, you know, if you look at other elements of the economy, right, they're predicting a tax shortfall of, of 1.5 of GDP because of the transition away from internal combustion engines to, to electric vehicles. At least some big stark numbers that we've kind of been you know, aware of for a while. But as we said, in the last few months, we've started seeing prices of energy really skyrocket and the impact on customers you know, really taking hold. Fuel poverty may rise to 6 million households in the UK by spring. You know, this is sort of a 50% increase on what it was at the start of last year. 
Now, I know Ofgem is one of the big topics, you know, fuel poverty and you know, sort of, you know, vulnerable customers. But you know, this isn't a short term blip. This week, so this is the second week of January. This week, we saw Centric come out and, and say that this could last several years. Mm. So, I mean, I'm really sorry to start this podcast off. I'm really <laughs> down to know. But what I'm trying to say is that I think this year will probably be the year of the skeptic. The price of decarbonisation and the energy transition will become a real hot topic, a real issue. I think that as we go through 2022, the how of the energy transition will really be challenged. I think it's going to be taught, you know, discussed when we talk about investment in terms of policies. Energy's always been political. But this year, I think energy is going to be the biggie. That's a really good point. I, thanks for the, the presentation also from, from what happened in, in 2021 and how that links to, to 2022. I, I agree with, with your point. I think people are starting to realise the cost of energy. Although I have to say, I'm not sure whether consumers really understand what part of it is the cost of the energy transition as opposed to maybe due to other effects and whether just looking at the 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 end number on the invoices is the extent of it or whether it'd be interesting to see if the questions that are starting to be asked is you know is it just what we're hearing about gas prices and is that due to the energy transition are are we now paying for that weren't we already paying for it these are, are, are interesting questions and I think I agree with you 2022 will be year of questions in that sense so i also worry i mean i suppose my, my, my concern is more about the fact that we're going to be talking a lot more about policy and public finance than we are about action and actually taking those actions interesting and if i may <clears throat> i it's a shame that we're starting a podcast on such a downbeat note um, <laughs> my first podcast recording of 2022 <laughs> for that matter um but you're right, it is, a, it is a really tricky time and tricky times require leadership and leadership with intent and a focus on the objective. And I think for me, that's going to be a critical part of the response and the reaction. I think if we focused on, if we were to focus on reducing the gas price in absolute terms, I might even go so far as to say that would be a false economy because it would be keeping our society, the general population, the people who frankly probably don't listen to a podcast like this, but are absolutely affected by these rising prices, almost addicted to the thing that's causing the price rises in the first place. I know historical parallels are dangerous. I know the times are different and I don't mean to make light of vulnerability for a second. But if you look back at the 1970s oil price crises, for example, Yes, they were painful. Yes, they led to the falls of governments and all kinds of major um, Mm. fundamental structural changes. But let's focus in on the energy sector for a second. In Brazil, they started working on a technology to convert sugarcane into bioethanol. In the US, a whole industry developed around this thing called solar power, a recognition that you could harness solar energy from the sun and use it to, to charge and electrify electrify things. Wow. In Japan, they drove the creation of, of very fuel, intense, uh, fuel uh, efficient internal combustion engines. Now, why do I raise these things? Because as my grandma would tell you, 
a crisis creates an opportunity. And I, I am an optimist, for those who know me, I'm, I am a perpetual optimist. I appreciate this is hard and I appreciate you're correct. The numbers are going to come home to roost. People are going to be asking big questions. But I sincerely hope that we don't fall back to a position of trying to ameliorate this short-term problem rather than face the structural challenge, which is the transition to net zero. I think you might have persuaded me to become a bit more optimistic about this year and the fact that I think we all here on the podcast love a bit of a challenge. And maybe that is the summary of 2022 is it's going to be a challenging year. And actually that optimistic view that there are solutions out there and actually some of the right decisions can be made, I think is a good piece of hope to cling to. And if anything, maybe it links into your first point around leadership. It'll be really interesting to see how some of the policy announcements and some of the direction that is set at the heart of government start to funnel through to the decisions that are then made to implement. And I'm sure we'll get some of those in the podcast. Well, leaving leadership aside for a second, let's also, you know, let's talk, let's talk practical numbers for a second, given you say they're coming home to roost. Um, I'm an economist by training, although my friends will tell you I don't practice it very often. If you look at counterfactuals for a second, if all of a sudden individuals' energy prices have spiked to the degree that they have and will, let's, let's be clear, the cost of the alternative suddenly became that much cheaper. So are we going to see a residential solar boom in 2022? As consumers look at the rising price of their bills and realize that the payback period for the solar on the rooftop just reduced by 30%. Or whatever. I, I haven't done the numbers, but but indicatively, it suddenly got cheaper. And I wonder, therefore, if actually this could drive a series of social changes in the way that otherwise policymakers have struggled to. Because this is going to hit every individual across the country, and therefore the response might be more universal. I like that. And I I, I think that might be part of the uncertainty point that I raised at the start in terms of as the paradigm is slightly shifted in terms of pricing, yes, we'll get slightly different views in terms of where the numbers stack up. So the last part of maybe 2021, we were talking you know, all the time about heat pumps. You know, the economics of those have, have markedly deteriorated in the last few months. So you know, does that affect? And you know, we've got to talk about both the short-term investment cycles, but also the long-term. And this is where I think there'll be an interesting marriage between short-term economic plays and investment decisions versus long-term policy and how long-term policy decisions are influenced by some of the, the structural changes that have happened across you know, some of the markets that we're seeing at the moment. Mm. Well, I mean, let's run with that for a second. So if the economics of heat pumps have deteriorated, flip side, the economics of energy efficiency have improved. <laughs> So yeah, fully agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. You could always do like a what's hot and what's not in the in the next CRA podcast. I think, I think that might be it. I think Laura's got her next podcast. <laughs> and I, I actually have a, a challenge to those points that you're making because not not that I disagree at all. I think it it all makes sense. I just wonder whether we, we need to take a step back here and think will the population think this way and is is what you're talking about really true for everyone or or or, or just considered by a small proportion of the population and I, I i just think 
renters, for example, they don't have that option to 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 think about what else is out there for them, um, and 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 even those who who own their properties, even if it is true that that uh, installing a solar panel might actually make sense financially in the in the current climate, do they know that? So how how obviously pol policy can help, but is there is there also a sort of almost a marketing issue here because people might not know or realize that that's true um, or that they've, they've, they've attained the threshold where, where actually it would make sense for them to, to, to take that decision. Um, and I think it's, it, it, it's almost a marketing issue as well as a policy issue, right, on, on this. That's a very interesting perspective, Laura. Um, and it's particularly complicated by who speaks to the consumer. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I mean, we as, as, as private citizens have a relationship with our suppliers, right? our retailers, they sell us electricity and gas. Mm -hmm. the, the, trick, the trick is in the name. They, they sell us electricity and gas. They have a vested interest in selling us electricity and gas. There are a few that are a bit more enlightened and think about the relationship between the consumer and the institution. But as a general rule, they make money off of selling kilowatt hours or therms. And so, understandably, they are not necessarily going to be extolling the virtues of solar panels on everyone's roofs because it is a long-term decrease in their ability to sell to us um, and potentially even exacerbating their current challenge. And so I wonder, and you're right, I wonder who does speak to the public. I mean, arguably government, arguably, sure. but... I don't know that many people read government advertisements for things. Um, I hate to be exactly. corrected. And actually, Doug, you, you mentioned those most enlightened suppliers. And, and, and I think this is a good um, step to, to, to my, my trend for 2022, or something that I see will be a big topic for 2022. And that is the year sort of retail regulation will get a makeover and we, we let the market do, do its thing, perhaps. And what, what I mean by that, um, is following on from your point, Ant, right? Um, high prices, consumers are, are, are currently seeing 2022 as the year their invoices are going to go up by a lot. And, and if we look at retail regulation, right? If we take a step back to what's happened in the past few years, the price cap was introduced um, a, a couple of years ago, 2019, for a reason. There was specific issues that were meant to be addressed through the price cap, and in particular, for example, um, the, the the loyalty penalty, as it's called, right, um, for for consumers to what, what, that consumers were paying by 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 staying loyal to 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 their supplier. And if we take a step back to see, okay, consumer protection in that sense is a good thing, but what what's been the impact? Of, of the price gap over the past six months and, and what's being considered right now for, for 2022, um, both on consumers, but, but, also, but also on suppliers, right? You, you, you were talking about suppliers before, and I think, I think this is a, a, something that needs to be considered. What, what has been the impact and what the impact likely to be? So if we, if we look at the, the market right now, there is no price differential in the market anymore in between advantages offer or, or fixed tariffs that, that suppliers are offering 
and loyalty tariffs, sort of standard um, default tariffs as, as they are called. There's no more, there's no price differentials anymore. And this was one of the goals almost of the price gap, right? To 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 close that that gap between loyalty tariff and and a, a, a fixed tariff that's supposed to give you an incentive to 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 switch. That's closed now. But but what else has happened over the past few months? We've we've seen the exit of 25 plus suppliers in the market. Over the past few years, the the big six as they're called um, have, are now the big four, big three, um, need to to keep up with mergers in, in, in acquisitions. But another big point is is innovation in the market is really stalling, right? We're, we're seeing smart meters being rolled out, yes, but it seems, and, and, and this is something that's been raised by suppliers quite a lot over the past couple of years is they can't innovate, or at least there isn't, they don't have the, the money really to do so. Um, margins are really tight. So, I, and obviously I appreciate here, um, Doug, obviously you're, you're in, in Ofgem's capacity, you know, the Ofgem's goal here and, and what, what needs to be achieved is, is really difficult. And, and, I don't, and I don't mean to, 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 to make that, um, that any, any less important because it is difficult. I just wonder, 2022, the way it's starting to play out, I wonder whether there might be another question here at play is, is the price gap still appropriate in the current market setting? And I, and I see consultations and calls for inputs being put out at the moment, which aim at almost putting a, a plaster on the issues. So wholesale prices are rising and the price gap is updated every six months which means that supply can't pass through the impact on consumers straight away. We are seeing estimates of the price gap increasing by about 50% in, in April. And of Jim looking at the possibility of increasing or decreasing the time between, um, between price gap updates. And these all seem like solutions that make sense to fix the problems we're seeing right now. But are they? But is it a long-term solution? And and I, I wonder whether 2022 is the year where we we, we realize maybe um, the, the 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 price cap has has achieved what it was supposed to achieve when it was first put in place, and and maybe it isn't the right tool for what's coming. So I, I kind of don't want to ask a, a, a cheeky question, but I mean, Doug, how was your Christmas? Because I hear rumours <laughs> that there were, were some quite senior crisis meetings, um, even just days after Christmas with the government getting involved. And we know that Rishi this week has been touring the country, but also having very detailed conversations about, you know, what, what is amounting to a bit of a political crisis. Thanks, Ant. Yeah, I mean, it's... Of course, there've been meetings. Uh, understandably, right? As you say, it's it's a crisis. The, the language is it rings true. Our overarching priority as Ofgem is to protect consumers, and specifically to protect vulnerable consumers. I am, we are, I am absolutely open to alternative suggestions. Uh, I think the government is in general, and I, that's why these consultations happen. That's why these dialogues happen. We we must remain focused on the long-term transition, the shift to net zero, 
that that is a change. Change requires, as as the name implies, it requires uh, different behaviors, different costs, different drivers. This is this is part of it. That said, energy is a fundamental good, and we must never forget that. It's not desired in and of itself. It's desired because of the services it delivers, heat, warmth, light, etc. And so we we have to tread a really tricky tightrope, honestly, between the short-term costs and, and protecting as many people as we can um, and the long-term desire to have people uh, in a sustainable market that's fueled by innovation um, and offers real value to consumers. And, and that is immensely difficult. I mean, prices, no one this time last year would have expected prices to rise by 500% mm. in under a year. I saw the central announcement. I don't know how long these prices will persist. The short answer is no one does because no one foresaw them. And analysts all over the spectrum will tell you, you know, this is a short-term blip or this is a long-term transitional thing, et cetera. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I think the key, the key is how can we act in the best interests of the majority? And I, I think this is this is in line, right? I I, I think we agree here. And, and again, is what, what the alternative might look like is <clears throat> if 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 we had the 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 answer, um, that would be really easy. It's just obviously you mentioned that of Jim's role is to protect consumers and and obviously in particular vulnerable consumers. And the question is. Is the price cap doing this now? It might be to some extent, but thinking about those consumers today, January 2022, and, and those consumers in 20, even just April 2022, and and price increases will will happen either way, whether it's through a price cap. It's just I don't have a I don't have an answer for an alternative. I just wonder whether it might look like something that's more targeted to those consumers um and that's 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 a thought there are alternatives that exist right so across <laughs> europe there are lots of examples of social payments you know that are done at one-off level but but also you know social tariffs that are mandated so there are alternatives right we all know that and we've looked at them and yeah, there are merits to, to to some and there are downsides to others but are we missing the point I think, Doug, you hit it on the head, right? People don't care about you know, the cost per kilowatt hour. They care about heating their home. And actually, is this not an opportunity for actually government to be a bit bolder and you know, really look at the issues that the current housing stock in the UK has, which is insulation, which is you know, the efficiency by which we drive that. I mean, you know, the, the end cost, when we can keep putting sticky blasters on in terms of you know, unit cost of, of energy going in, but actually, should we not be looking at the amount of energy used? And, and this is where the government has tried to make a play over the last few years in terms of you know, green home discounts and you know, sort of different incentive schemes, but they've not really hit the nail on the head. One of the estimates that I saw was that you know, maybe the government needs to fund the 25% of, of either lowest income or most vulnerable households in the UK fully and that's a huge investment, an absolutely massive investment. But actually, we are talking long-term decisions here, um, you know, the, over the, the course of the transition, which will last 30 years. Is this not an opportunity to look at energy efficiency? <laughs> and I, yeah, I love your enthusiasm. Um, 
Absolutely, yes. And let's go one further. I mean, you describe it as a huge investment, but let's call out what an investment, quote unquote, really means. That means jobs. That means innovation. That means technology. That means a commitment to a newer, lower carbon trajectory. How do you think, I mean, let's look back for a second again. History is, a, is an incredibly powerful precedent. Let's look back at that Brazilian sugarcane biomass, uh, bioethanol uh, example. That didn't come about overnight. That came about because of a very clear policy direction and initiative to try and reduce the amount of petrol being burned in Brazil's cars. What you're talking about here is effectively the same thing in a UK context. You're saying we should reduce the amount of gas and electricity used in people's homes to keep them warm. Mm. And I wholeheartedly agree. Mm -hmm. Because for us to reach net zero, we need some bold uh, paradigm shifts, if you will, to tackle some of the wicked problems that revolve around addiction to, to the consumption of energy. And to come back to something Laura mentioned earlier, which is extremely pertinent, what about the people who don't own their own homes? If you look at that 20 to 25% of the most vulnerable, as you describe it, there are a significant percentage that are not homeowners. There's a correlation there, a logical causal correlation. How can we as society best help those individuals? What are we prepared to do to help those individuals to be on a long-term green course corrective path? I know that you were at COP. Let's look back to COP for a second. Let's consider all of the financial pledges that were made by some of the world's largest financial institutions to what I believe in finance is called ESG, but more broadly, sustainability, commitment to low carbon growth, commitment to green growth, etc. I can imagine it is not beyond the wit of us as, as, as smart professionals to imagine that you could coalesce a group of potential investors, professional private finance companies, alongside a government scheme to, as you describe it, to do completely insulate and, and improve those homes. And you could use the counterfactual, i.e. the high price of energy right now to those consumers as effectively part of the payback mechanism. So individual pays significantly less for their quality of life, heating, light, warmth, because you've upgraded their home. But a slice of what they pay goes back into the fund that is administered on behalf of the collective and is invested into by uh, by private finance companies. And that's considered a return on investment. I don't know. I haven't given this a great deal of thought. But I think this kind of creative thinking will mm. drive a long-term solution to the problem. So on the topic of, of net zero and what we might uh what might expect 2022, the next trends. Um, Doug, do you wanna do you wanna talk to us about what your thoughts are? Yeah, absolutely. I so one one thing I've been reflecting on personally, privately, is what is net zero? Good question. And, and I appreciate that's I appreciate that's a bit meta. <laughs> um, but but please bear with me for a second. What is this thing called net zero? How are we going to know when we get there? Is someone going to ring a bell? Is there going to be a green flag flying on, you know, on Big Ben or something? I, I don't mean to be facetious. I, I, I think about this quite a lot because in my capacity in Ofgem, 
our team is looking at some of the forward thinking, forward looking things. It's the nature of a strategy team. Um, and one of the things that's particularly interesting to me is uh, the Rio ED2 process. For those of you who are in the know in the acronyms, this is the process by which the distribution companies in the UK have their price control um, every five years. So the current one that we're working on at the moment, closing out with those distribution businesses, is for the 2023 to 2028 period. Great. So we have a whole team of people working really hard in Ofgem and obviously teams of people in the distribution companies collaborating closely to try and make sure that we all agree the business plans and we agree what's going to be funded. And I was thinking about this over the Christmas and New Year break and I was thinking, okay, well, that effectively leaves ED3 and the first 18 months or so of ED4 before we're supposed to be at net zero. So anything that doesn't happen in ED2 pretty much has to happen in ED3. So wherever we end up in 2028, we've got to get from there to net zero. And then that, in turn, that sort of evaluation of the delta led me to wonder, what is this thing called net zero? I mean, how, how would you know if any individual institution in the power sector was, was genuinely net zero? Is it that one actor is carbon negative, therefore another one can be carbon positive? That might be the case, but then we need incredible coordination. So you asked, what is this What is this year for me? Maybe this is the year of definitions. Maybe this is the year in which we as a society, that's government, but also the people, right? Ultimately, we're, we're a democracy, say, all right, we understand net zero to be blank. Um, that in turn, I believe, will lead to a conversation about information sharing. Right. The most obvious bit of which is carbon profiling for each individual institution, um, because we collectively all need to share that information to better understand the carbon intensity of what the things our people are doing. Otherwise, how are we going to know if we get to net zero? That's sort of logical. And that for me is my final, my final thing for 2022, and I'll open to you guys for comments and reactions, is if we're sharing all this information and if everybody's sharing information, it would be remiss of me not to mention digitalization. The Energy Digitalization Task Force report coming out next, I'm sure everybody's very excited for this late Christmas present. I know yeah. I am. Um, good, and glad to hear it. Um, <laughs> I hope that it pushes us as an industry, it challenges us as an industry to embrace the opportunities of digitalization and the sharing of information because it's no good frankly, if one institution is impeccable at calculating their carbon credentials and yet no one else does anything. We, we have to be on a level playing field. We have to have that information shared. And if we're sharing information, let's be frank, it's 2022. <laughs> it has to be digital. It sort of goes, goes without saying. So definitions, getting practical about net zero, thinking about the medium to longer term part of the transition, fueled by the price crisis, fueled by the impact on consumers, fueled by all the things we were talking about just now. And then last but not least, getting digitalization right, making the most of the opportunities it offers to help us decarbonize. Excellent. I, I'm, I'm so glad. I mean, there's so much to unpack in, in what you've said. I mean, it's definitely not meta. I think these are real topics that we have to be discussing through the course of this year. I'm really glad you picked up on um, EED2. I, I think that distribution companies, the unsung heroes of what the energy transition is trying to achieve. I mean, you know, National Grid gets a lot of plaudits about the work that it does, 
for the distribution companies you know, are spending significant sums in, in revolutionizing the way that energy is transmitted across the country, distributed across the country. So let me say that again. The distribution companies are, are really revolutionizing the way that energy is, is you know, moved around the country. Um, I, I, I looked a bit at some of the, the draft proposals that the distribution companies uh, put in a while back. And you know, I, I remember them you know, addressing net zero. And wow, that definition of net zero point really does ring true, especially this week. Um, we had a, a big announcement about the role of methane um, in European temperature rises. And actually, that's, that's something we really haven't addressed as part of you know, the definition of what net zero really is. And I, I think, actually, we talk a lot about carbon. But yeah, that's, that's definitely something that I'm taking away from this conversation is, is what is net zero? What does that really determine? How do we measure it? I suppose, you know, there are opportunities for success here in the fact that, you know, if you look at the international financial system, um, there are standards around reporting, you know, there are consistent ways of reporting how financial flows and how companies operate. And you know, if we can put something in place that, that ensures the standardization of carbon, of emissions, of you know, the different scopes, and there is work going on, you know, we, we see lots of it in PCAF and you know, science-based targets and you know, all this good stuff. So yeah, I think this is a really important point and definitely something I'm gonna start researching this year. Um, so that's the thought provoker in itself. Um, DNOs, wow, yeah, what a challenge they've got. I mean, as you said, you know, the amount of work that they've got to do to, to, to reach that is, is massive. And you know, whilst most of their submissions mentioned that they are targeting net zero, boy, the, the work that, that, that is needed to underpin that is massive. They talk a lot in the press releases about electric chargers, heat pumps, and the ability for those. But Doug, I think you're right. I think the real game here is digitization. And that's not just about sharing information. I think that's much deeper in terms of, you know, if you look at how DNOs are moving into things like smarter systems, if you look at the way they're looking at the class, customer load, active system services type stuff, you know, all of this really complex thing, uh, things that the, the, the DNOs are looking at. I think you're right. Digitization, digital is going to be the key theme that we need to get the utility space, you know, trailblazing um, as maybe they haven't in the past. You you picked up a, a phrase that I might um, reiterate and, and explore a bit more if I may, Ant, specifically about commonality or sort of a critical um, common denominator, let's say. I think in, in the data world, they used words like taxonomy and architecture and ontology and all these sort of things. But the, but the point is absolutely right. What we can't have is 10 different ways of calculating net zero across 10 different theoretical institutions. And I don't mean to pick up on the distribution companies particularly, it's just that ED2 happens to be front of mind within Ofgem at the moment. So ED3 and ED4 are logical next steps. The same applies by the way in power generation, the same applies in, in retail even. You know, um, how are we going to have a net zero power system, which is presumably everything and everybody, um, and that requires that common understanding. And common understanding has to be enshrined in a single common metadata. I think of this a bit like languages. I'm, I'm a simple creature at heart, right? I think of this like languages. If everybody in the world speaks a different language, arguably some can communicate with each other, um, some better than others, perhaps. 
but ultimately that's that's not helpful um there's reason technical standards and engineers co can collaborate across pretty much any language and that's that it's written primarily in numbers and formulae um or internet protocols are written primarily in specific scripts you know computer languages were developed for exactly this reason and i therefore think about the idea that we could have a common sharing of information across a common protocol or common standard and it becomes increasingly important in my in my in my personal thinking um, as to how we would share this information across these different actors and also fundamentally to come back to a point laura made earlier about innovation if the cost of innovation is high argue debatable but let's leave that for a second um you presumably reduce it by reducing barriers to entry and a major barrier to entry in our industry always has been probably always will be is access to information for a load of really good reasons <laughs> and a load of really historical perhaps not so good reasons so if that is such a such a barrier and and I hear that from from professional entrepreneurs I hear that from policymakers I hear that from everybody how can we use some common digital concepts to reduce that barrier to entry and, and drive innovation and change. And I wonder if 2022 will be the year that we hopefully see that in the Energy Digitalization Task Force report next week, and then are able to drive towards that and implement some of those things over the coming years, realistically, um, but starting in this one. So maybe to close up this conversation, and I don't disagree with anything that, that was said, actually, I, I think that's right. Um, we're not that far away from 2030, but maybe I want to 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 maybe tweak one of your statements, um, Doug. Here is say you know is 2022 um, going to be the year of definitions? I think 2022 needs to be the year of definitions, and actually, it needs to be the year of definitions not only in the context of distribution, and they do have a very difficult role to play here because. As you mentioned, they don't know what the future looks like. So what is net zero? What does 2030 looks like? What does 2050 looks like? We don't know. On top of that, how do we get there, right? Um, the, the, the future scenarios in between 2022 and 2030 and 2050, we don't know what's going to happen. And not only on the side of distribution, right? As you mentioned, it's, it's, it's the whole system. Um, and actually, those definitions need, need to need to be made from a from a systems perspective, um, because everyone, every player, every stakeholder will have a role in achieving that and defining that. I think it's a it's a it's a point. So I'll just I'll just add a, a should here. I think twenty twenty two will will need to be the year of definitions for 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 net zero, whatever that means, and however that's defined um, to be to be achieved. I like the idea of the bell ringing, though, but for, for net zero, Doug. I think I think that should be a should be retained. You heard it here first, Laura. Um, <laughs> some the politician of the day, I'm sure, will get the privilege. Uh, but 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 there is something in setting out such a such a sort of impassioned agenda as we have done, and reinforcing that through messages like. COP and all the various uh, press articles and reviews and, and analyses that go alongside it. We need to recognize if and when we get there and or we need to be calling ourselves out on our progress if we're not. And I think that's that's something that, that does occur to me as well. 
to bring this conversation full circle back to the energy price crises of the moment, we consume a very large amount of gas in, in the residential context in the UK, much more so than perhaps other countries in Europe. Um, so how can we maintain customer prices? Big existential question for 2022, maintain some, of, some semblance of affordability in the short to medium term, while recognizing that in the longer term, we need to shift away from, from burning gas in, in domestic properties because, or get very, very good at abating carbon almost everywhere else in order to allow for that to, to persist. Um, and that transition will be bumpy. So through any bumpy transition, how do we protect the most vulnerable consumers? Closing this discussion, I think there's another thing coming in 2022, which actually will be helpful in putting a framework together um, might hand over to you, Doug, here um, to discuss this, but 2022 will also be the year an energy bill is coming out. Um, and, and this might be a, a, a good closing point here in terms of what framework that sets out for the, for the sector. Long overdue, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's, it's fair to observe that it's been a long time since we had an energy bill, yes. Um, I'm sure one of your listeners will will write in and, and correct me on this, but I think it's nine and a half years since the last one. Um, so on that basis, it sets a dangerous precedent if we need to wait another nine and a half for the next one. That said, I'm hopeful that we won't. I'm hopeful that we will be able to secure an energy bill this year. Obviously, there's a lot of political and, and uh, parliamentary process that has to be gone through, and, and that's way um, beyond my shrift. But I think it's fair to say there's a lot of uh, expectation in the industry for what the energy bill will con will contain and how it will work. For anyone who's not intimately familiar with primary legislation, and I suspect that might be many, many uh, normal people in this country, um, primary legislation is, a, is effectively a, a Christmas tree-like structure off which you can then subsequently hang secondary legislation or codes or licenses or any other things, you know, political um, legislative tools, uh, and it sort of sets out the general statement of intent. So it is very much uh, under consideration at the moment. I'm not that close to the detail of what's going into it, and so I can't comment on that because that's being driven obviously within government and off-gem sort of arm's length removed, but I think it's fair to say that the energy sector needs more guidance, more leadership. Again, we're, we're having these recurring themes, which I suppose is the point of a 2022 oriented podcast about what's likely to come out um, in the in the near future. And this is definitely an opportunity. It will create a framework effectively for the things that will follow. I mean, wow, if you look at the change that's happened in the industry over the last nine and a half years, right, and the challenges that exist now that maybe weren't as, as, as detailed back then, we've got so much that could go into this bill, right? This is massive. And, you know, as you said, the Christmas tree um, metaphor is great. You know, what are we going to be hanging off the different branches that exist? You know, I'm expecting to see tons on, around electrification. I hope to see, you know, talk about generation and SMRs, you know, the opportunity to start talking small nuclear, flexibility has to be a cornerstone of some of the, the, the work here. Hydrogen, you, we talked lots about hydrogen. You know, I'd be expecting to see you know, some really meaty topics really come into this bill. 
yeah, I mean, <laughs> we all wait with bated breath, Ant. But I think the my observation, taking a step back from from my position, is how can we get to net zero? And I don't mean that flippantly. Do we need to wait for primary legislation to drive through significant changes? which in itself, just so you guys are aware, is a very time-consuming exercise. A significant number of people dedicate a significant amount of time. Policymakers, and then of course our legal teams uh, across government, and then finally parliament itself and politics and so on, which is great for scrutiny purposes and great for accountability purposes. And, I, and I'm wholeheartedly in favor of that, of course, but it's extremely time-consuming. And it runs the risk of not being everything it needs to be. And with the pace of change being what it is in the industry, how can we adjust as an industry to a higher pace of change, which will require more government sort of steers, let's say, in form of legislation, in form of consultations, in form of uh, policies, et cetera, and yet simultaneously maintain investor confidence. To come back to your point, the year the numbers come home to roost, we need to ensure investor confidence in a whole load of technologies. You mentioned a few just then in the context of the energy bill, but, but even ranging beyond that, how can we balance between pace of change on the one hand, cost of innovation, to your point, Laura, on the other, on the other and finally, investment at scale and ensuring we create the conditions for the private sector to feel confident in investing in, in the UK's low carbon future. And I think this is a great point, right? We started this podcast on quite a, a pessimistic note. So let's let's end it on an optimistic note. I think we have a lot to look forward to in 2022. We've discussed a lot of positive development that we're expecting to see over the next year and then the next 10 years to go to to go forward and and we can't wait to see that. And I think we need to catch up at the end of the year to see how we did on, on those predictions, by the way. Let's do that. As always, I mean, I, I've, I've loved this conversation. I've learned a lot and I've definitely got a new reading list, right? I mean, digital task force coming out, that's top of my list. But also <laughs> the, the conversations around you know, net zero governance, you know, it's something I'm going to be researching personally as well. Um, you know, the regulatory regime for DNOs, I'm super excited to see what comes out of that because those plans are going to be really interesting to follow. Um, so thank you for the time. I've, I've learned a lot. Absolutely. My pleasure. It was uh, really nice chatting with you both. Look forward to all these uh, predictions coming true. And as you say, Laura, very happy to look back at the end of the year and, and see how we got on, see whether we are at the, the new Nostradamus of, uh, of the UK's energy scene. Great. Well, thanks so much uh, for joining, joining this podcast.